Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. Today, I am just delighted, is the word that comes to mind, to welcome Stephen Lubisky, a political scientist at Harvard University and co-author of the New York Times best-selling book, How Democracies Die. I'm very optimistic in the medium to long term, but it's going to take a while. It's going to take a struggle. So you got to, you have to pace yourself. You have to not lose faith. You have to not exhaust yourself in 2024. You've got, no matter who wins in 2024, you've got to get out of bed the next day and continue to fight for multiracial democracy. Professor Levitsky's new book is called The Tyranny of the Minority. Why American Democracy Has Reached a Breaking Point. A breaking point. In his new book, Stephen Levitsky writes that we, this is his quote, it's so clear, we stand at a crossroads. Either America will be a multiracial democracy or it will not be a democracy at all. We'll either achieve multiracial democracy or we'll lose democracy altogether. That's crucial for us, I think, in this country to understand. That's a core question for all of us, and that's why I'm so glad to welcome Professor Stephen Lubitsky to the Soul of the Nation. Welcome. Thanks, Jim. It's a great pleasure to be here. So, I often, in these podcasts, start with a question of my guest, which is, uh, how is your spirit? <laughs> how is your spirit today? But in this case, I'll broaden it and ask, how is the spirit of American democracy? And when you look at the landscape of democracy here and even globally, are you hopeful? Are you pessimistic or something else? That's a big question to start with. Um, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful for several reasons. First of all, we were very accustomed these days to think about democracy being in retreat all over the world, and it is in retreat in some places. But I think we often pay insufficient attention to the places where Democrats, small d Democrats, the forces defending democracy are pushing back. And they're pushing back in Poland, they're pushing back in Malaysia, they're pushing back in Thailand, in Sri Lanka, in Venezuela, in Mexico, in Brazil. Um, and which leads me to think that, that uh, it's, it's not so easy to extinguish democracy. Uh, and it, it, it's a lot of work uh, to defend democracy, but, but, but the spirit of democracy has, has caught on in societies across the world and is not going to be easily wiped out. Mm. Here in the United States, people are tired. People are tired of every four years there being a seemingly life and death election that's down to the wire where uh, people worry, they lose sleep, they're anxious. Uh, and in the book, we try to, to, to explore why, how, how we've come to that point. And I worry that people are tired because, de again, defending democracy is a long game. It's a long struggle. It's not, it's not one election. It's not one weekend. Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a work of a lifetime. We've got to keep, no matter who wins the 2024 election, we're going to have to get up the next day and still work to defend 
our democracy. So worldwide, I see a lot of a lot to be optimistic about, a lot to a lot of democratic spirit. And I just hope that our spirit doesn't flag here at home. That's so important for us to understand how being tired can make you cynical and withdraw. Um, your last book, How Democracies Die, looked at examples from around the world um, of authoritarian regimes rising and pointed out the factors rising here. And But what did you and your co-author, Daniel Ziblatt, want to accomplish with this book? Uh, what part of the American story did you think still needed to be told? Well, we, we wrote the second book for a couple of reasons. How Democracies Die, we wrote, uh, didn't intend to write it. Uh, I, I don't, neither of us studies um, American democracy. I'm, I study Latin America. Daniel mm -hmm. studies interwar Europe. But because of that, I have studied democratic breakdown in many parts of the world. Daniel has studied closely democratic, some very tragic democratic breakdowns in Europe. And in 2015, 2016, early on, we both looked around and we realized we had seen this movie before. And uh, most Americans hadn't seen this movie. It was a foreign film. And um, we wrote How Democracies Die to describe the process by which democracies get into trouble, slide into crisis, so that Americans could see the warning signs before it was too late. It was basically an effort to describe the way democracies can get into trouble. But after we published the book, we got a lot of questions from citizens, from journalists, right. about hmm. what do we do? How do we, how do we get out of this? So this book is an effort to dive deeper into the question of how we got into this mess. And secondly, to think seriously about how to get out. Yeah. What to do? That's our question. Not just what do we think, but what are we going to do? All of us. Um, I've said before that to me, the heart of the movement to undermine uh, democracy here is really a sentence. People want to prevent our changing demography from changing our democracy. That democracy is changing, our demography is changing. We talked before this about how we're becoming much more diverse, but they want to prevent that from changing our democracy. So there are key differences between the U.S. and Europe. Uh, but only here have these right-wing movements uh, uh, managed to gain federal power already. And now, what about our system here? These movements are often in parties and militias all over the world. But here, this has already gained power and now is gaining more. That's the particular distinctiveness, a dangerous distinctiveness to our system here. Yeah, so a couple of things. You're right that there, um, we're seeing the emergence of a, of a kind of radical far right uh, across Around the industrialized the West. Right. Somewhere between 20 or 30 percent of right. the population, virtually every established democracy. I think, the, well, the U.S. is different in a couple of ways, and you pointed to one, but I want to just take a step back and point to another, and that is we're ahead of the curve. We are, um, we are more diverse than other democracies. And so the United States is, we don't always realize this. We're in the middle of a transition that no democracy has ever successfully undergone. A transition in which a dominant ethnic group loses its numerical majority and its dominant social status. 
And that, we spend a lot of time on that in the book. That's a big deal. That is a big deal. And that causes a, 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 a pretty intense reaction. Now, Jim, you're right. The U.S. is different from other, from European cases of, of far-right populism in that in the United States, the, the radical right captured one of two major political parties and was able, without ever actually achieving a, 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 uh, an electoral majority, was able to take power and govern on its own. So in, in Europe, you've got cases where the far right is in opposition, like Germany and France. You have cases in Scandinavia where the, germ, where the far right is a junior partner in a coalition. Even in Italy, where it's the dominant partner, they, the far right shares power with other conservative parties. So it's only in the U.S. that you get an, what has become an extremist party governing, uh, governing the nation. So... Donald Trump looks like he'll win the Republican nomination for the presidency. And he's been at the center of so much of this conversation. And, you know, we were talking before how the sort of promising, saying, planning what he will do, laying out authoritarian agendas is, is quite astounding. We're hearing those every, every day. But you write this. The threat facing American democracy was never simply a strong man with a cult-like following. The problems are more endemic than that. In fact, they're deeply rooted in our politics and the conditions that gave rise to the Trump presidency remain in place. Say more about that. Well, the, the fundamental threat to our democracy, again, is that it's not a single leader. No single leader is capable of killing a democracy. Um, right. authoritarian leaders need accomplices. They need allies. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's when mainstream political parties and mainstream politicians tolerate, accommodate, eventually cooperate with those authoritarian leaders, that's when democracy gets into trouble. And so a big part of, a big focus of our book is not on Trump. There's not a, there's not much on Trump in this book, but the the, the fact that the entire Republican Party has walked away from democracy. And that's a really rare thing. It is not common that mainstream political parties, parties that have competed peacefully in elections for, in this case, 150 years, it is not common for mainstream parties to just turn away from democracy. So that requires explanation. And that gets back to the demographic, societal, cultural changes you were talking about earlier. So the focus on uh, cult-like narcissistic personality is, is limited and doesn't help us go deep enough to the underlying problems. Right. The Republican radicalization pre-existed Trump. It helped give birth to Trump. Uh, it enabled Trump, but it will almost certainly out, outlast Trump. It's not just about Trump. And I think one of the best chapters in your book is the one on the Republican Party being taken over and so radicalized, um, how they've walked away, as you say, from democracy. And I recall how there was an autopsy that Republicans did calling for a bigger tent party. Uh, some of the Republicans in the establishment were calling for that. And that was decided against, decided against. So when you give up the notion of a big tent, party and your own base is shrinking, uh, you, you double down and that's why 
Many of us are involved in efforts to fight voter suppression all over the country because voter suppression becomes necessary for the victory of a party. Yeah, no, the, the Republicans made a bet during the Civil Rights Revolution, you know, yep. more than half a century ago, um, that they, the Republicans were a minority party for much of the 20th century. What, you know, after the New Deal, the Republicans were very distinctively the minority party in the United States. And when the Democrats slowly, painfully slowly, but gradually and eventually embraced the cause of civil rights in the 1960s, Republican leaders um, made a bet. They realized that there were a lot of white voters, particularly in the South, which was overwhelmingly Democratic at the time. They calculated that there were a lot of white voters who were unhappy with policies aimed at combating racial inequality, busing affirmative action, fair housing policies, other civil rights policies. And they calculated if they could win over those disgruntled white voters, they could become a majority party. And it worked. It worked. So it started with Goldwater's uh, states' rights campaign and, and opposition to the Civil Rights Act. It continued with Nixon's Southern strategy. It continued with Reagan's assault on welfare queens and his, his uh, courting of, of Southern white evangelicals. So for 25 years in the latter part of the 20th century, the Republicans systematically appealed to white resentment, and they succeeded. The Republicans have never, not since, since the Voting Rights Act, the Republicans have never lost the white vote. They've won the white vote in every single election since 1968. Um, and they became a majority party. The, the South, the, the Southern whites went from being overwhelmingly Democrats to becoming overwhelmingly Republican. And the Republicans had a really good electoral run. Between 1968 and 1988, the 20 years, Republicans won every single presidential election except for the Watergate election of 76. Mm -hmm. But it, the, the strategy eventually ran into trouble because just as the Republicans were establishing themselves as America's white Christian party, the United States was becoming a lot less white and a lot less Christian. And so the 21st century rolls around and being an overwhelmingly white Christian party makes it really hard in the United States to win national majorities. Mm -hmm. The Republican Party has not won the popular vote in the United States since 2004. Basically, it has spent the entire 21st century uh, losing the popular vote in elections. Um, and there's reason for that. And when, when, so when Republicans realized in the second decade of the 21st century, that they were winning the vote, the, the white vote, but losing the American vote, they started to panic. And that's where we started to see the first efforts to restrict people's access to, to the vote, 2010, 11, 12, 13. This chapter, um, why the Republican Party abandoned democracy, I think is essential for us to all understand. I think you quote Ezra Klein in the book saying something like, Donald Trump didn't change the party, he just understood it, right? That's a very powerful point. He knew what was happening was happening before him, and he just, uh, theologically, I would say, he, he, he raised our worst demons against our better angels. So there's a political and a whole theological way to look at this too. But I think becoming a white identity party in a changing time, which is what they become, which means you have to, 
you have to restrict the voting for other people. Well, the initial plan, as you said, Jim, when, when, uh, when the Republicans started losing the national popular vote, right. the, the first response of, of, of national leaders was to rethink the party platform. And this is what parties do. And what, usually when parties lose elections yeah. uh, consistently, they rethink their platform, they change their leaderships, uh, and they try to build a broader base. They try to go back and win elections. And that's actually what the Republican Party leadership did with the autopsy report. And one of Jeb Bush's top campaign people was, was one of the main authors of that autopsy. This is 2013. This is why we lost uh, the election in why Obama won re-election in 2012. And the idea was, OK, we've got to appeal. We can't just appeal to white Christian men. We have to appeal to younger people. We have to appeal to non-white voters. Uh, we need to soften on immigration and, and, and become a multiracial party. And the, basically, the, the Republican base rejected that. And the first time the Republican base had an opportunity to vote on that strategy was the 2016 primary, where Donald Trump basically took, took that strategy, threw it in the trash, and, and promised a 180-degree a different strategy, and it worked. You quote Jeb Bush in the book saying, uh, I can't run a grievance campaign because I'm not a grievance candidate. Which and he's married to a Mexican woman. So there was a clear choice. They made a choice, and once that choice was made, they had to restrict the votes of other people. Um, you're right. There are three basic principles that Democratic small D parties must follow: accept the results of fair elections, reject the use of violence, and break ties to anti-democratic extremists. Right. And the uh, problem is that since 2020, the Republican Party has violated all three of those principles. So not only did uh, did uh, Donald Trump become the first U.S. sitting president to try to overturn an election, but the vast bulk of the Republican Party followed him, enabled that. Uh, Republicans have begun to flirt with violence. We can talk about that. But most importantly, most centrally, the Republican Party refuses to break with anti-democratic extremists. This is something that we know from studying democratic breakdowns in Europe and in Latin America. When mainstream political parties, the center left or the center right, when they flirt with, accommodate, tolerate, cooperate with anti-democratic extremists, that is when democracy gets into trouble. Um, and that's what's happening now. Republican leaders like uh, like Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, others, they knew that Biden won the 2020 election. In private, they were very disturbed by Donald Trump's effort to overthrow the election. But they enabled him nevertheless. They refused to, to publicly accept uh, Biden's victory. They refused to convict him in the Senate, which is ultimately going to be very, very consequential. They blocked efforts to, to create an independent commission to investigate January 6th, and to this day, Republican leaders now, almost without exception, say they will support Trump in 2024, even if he's convicted of trying to overturn an election. This is the behavior of a party that is no longer committed to democracy. That's what strikes me as so important about your point in this book, is that in our case, it isn't just people on the right, and they grow or they... Or they decline. A whole political party in a two-party system 
has abandoned democracy. That's what's most frightening about this moment. And uh, let's bring uh, to the discussion the new Speaker of the House of Representatives, Mike Johnson. He spread lies about the election, including outlandish conspiracy theories. He organized a lawsuit against the results, voted against certifying the results from the states. In other words, he wanted to deny the will of the American voters and substitute his party's will instead. How concerned are you that this man is now one of the most powerful Republicans and leaders in the country? What I'm most concerned about is what it says. I mean, the, uh, those of us who are old enough to, to know, the Republicans have been radicalizing for some time, right? In 1994, which is now a long time ago, the, the Gingrich Revolution toppled the sort of mainstream center-right leadership in the House and pulled the Republican House caucus to the right. The, a, a representative of the Gingrich Revolution, John Boehner, was overthrown by the Tea Party Revolution, which pulled the party even further to the right. Kevin McCarthy was a child of the Tea Party Revolution. He was overthrown by an even more radical faction, to the point where I think it's not an exaggeration to say that um, you, there, you now need to be an election denier right. to be elected leader of the House Republican right. Caucus. You have to be openly authoritarian. Remember, accepting the results of elections, that's the cardinal rule of democracy. That is the cardinal rule of democracy. And you can't lead the House Republican Caucus today without being an election denier. So I'm looking at students here in this room. Um, we're on a campus of a major university. Uh, some of the best and brightest minds I would testify in my classes in this next generation. But I'm, I'm worried about their future. Um, and so are they. And according to one survey you cite in your book, two thirds of likely voters between the ages of 18 and 29 believe American democracy is in trouble or even failed. So that study conducted in 2022 by the Harvard Institute of Politics, what do you make of that survey and how do we, you know, we're looking out at these students, how do we engage young people in the work to protect their democracy? Those are great questions, but uh, speaking of young people, I have to uh, I have to embarrass myself and call out my friend Willa. Uh, my uh, one of my daughter's good friends growing up is, is here in the audience, and uh, Ali told me I have to publicly call you out. So, hi. Um, the why are young people so worried about democracy? It's it's pretty obvious, right? If you grew up in the twenty first century, you have the. Um, you have gone through two elections in which the winner of the popular vote lost the presidency. Um, another indicator, the, 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 it, we elect, senators are elected for staggered six-year terms, right? So we elect one-third of the Senate every two years, which means that it takes six years to fully elect a U.S. Senate. In every six-year block since the late 1990s, in every six-year block in the 21st century, so for those of you who are undergraduates, your whole life, the Democrats have won more votes than the Republicans. And yet the Republicans have controlled the Senate for about half the 21st century. So 
young people have grown up in a situation that's pretty damn near, I shouldn't use language like that at Georgetown, pretty darn close to minority rule. One more example, 2016, the loser of the, uh, of the popular vote wins the presidency. The loser of the, of the, the party that won fewer election, fewer votes excuse me, for the Senate won control of the Senate. That president and that Senate went on to nominate and approve three Supreme Court justices, creating the Supreme Court that we have now. If we simply had a, 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 major, a, a popular vote, where the popular vote winner won the presidency and won the Senate, just majority rule. We'd have a 6-3 liberal majority in the Supreme Court right now. This is the world that young people have grown up in. And they see that on issues like gun control, like abortion, uh, like climate change, like minimum wage, voting that, rights. like voting rights, there are strong, robust, yeah. consistent majorities in favor of legislation that cannot get through the U.S. legislature, in part because the uh, because majorities are stymied by by our institutions. So young people have very good reason to be fed up with the system. If I could say one more thing, that's what makes it so heroic that young people have stood up for democracy in the last few elections. Uh, young people never vote very much. Turnout among 18 to 29 is always lower. Uh, old white people vote more than anything else. But young people vote less. But Voter turnout among young people has been uh, at its highest rate in the last couple of elections, which has been critical to saving our democracy. So a, a bunch of people who were uh, and this is also true of participation in the Black Lives Matter protest, which I see as uh, as a democracy movement. Young people who have not benefited from our democracy in the 21st century stood up to defend it. Which means that my generation, our generation, I think, needs to do much more to give them voice. So you point out so powerfully um, that democracy is being stymied or blocked by the system, by our framework, by our structures. And going back to the title of your book, what we're facing now is the tyranny of the, of the minority and you've got a party opening, openly calling for white minority rule. They're doing it uh, subtly but structurally. At the local level, they're working to do what didn't happen last time. So in the middle of that, uh, you take on the Constitution. Now, I don't want to get nerdy here about the Constitution, but the Constitution is part of this, and your book lays that out pretty powerfully. Uh, we have the oldest written Constitution in the world, but we treat it as almost like a sacred document uh, where some countries around the world have amended their constitutions hundreds of times. We've done it 27 times. Uh, uh, what are some of the ways that our constitution itself prevents the United States from becoming a truly multiracial democracy? Couple of things. First of all, I guess most fundamentally, it's really hard to change the U.S. Constitution. Let me be clear: it should be hard to change the Constitution. It should not be the the rules of the game of a democracy should be hard to change. It should never be possible for one party to unilaterally change the rules of the game in a democracy because they, uh, the party would do that 
to weaken the opposition, to undermine competition, and to entrench itself in power. That's what happened in Venezuela in the early 21st century. It's what happened in Hungary. It's what happened recently in Israel, uh, or was attempted in, in Israel. So the Constitution should be hard to change. But the U.S., and there have been indices that measure this, has among democracies the hardest constitution in the world to change. It takes two-thirds of two chambers plus three-quarters of, uh, of state legislatures. So one thing that would help would be to make it at least somewhat easier to change the constitution, say two-thirds of two chambers, but not three-quarters of the states. That would be more in line with other democracies in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and one, one rule in particular that is actually really impossible to change is we have a very undemocratic Senate for a couple of reasons. But one of them is that every state has the same number of senators no matter how, uh, how no matter what the population is, meaning that senators do not represent people. They represent land. And in democracy, politicians are supposed to represent people. And because... Montana and, and Vermont and South Dakota and North Dakota and Wyoming have the same representation as California and New York and Texas and Florida and Illinois, we, we don't have a very democratic Senate. We have a, we have a, a Senate in which uh, a, a, a set of senators who represent a relatively small share of the population can veto um, legislation backed by the majority. And that's made worse by the filibuster rule. The filibuster rule is in effect a supermajority rule, which means that you need 60 votes to pass any legislation. And that's so our, the U.S. Senate is the institution, if, if there's any single one, that most systematically thwarts majority rule. The problem with the Senate is the representation in the Senate. To change that, you have to get the support of all 50 states. Every state needs to consent if we're going to change the structure of the U.S. Senate, which uh, very un unlikely. Then our District of Columbia has no representation in the Senate. Right. And there's the Electoral College. Right. The, the Electoral College is another obviously undemocratic institution. Um, the, when, the, when the framers were writing the Constitution, there, there were no democracies in the world. Every other major nation state was a monarchy. So the only really known way of selecting leaders in 1787 was through monarchic secession. And so the founders had no freaking idea what they were doing. And they debated a bunch of things. Madison wanted the Congress to select the president, which is basically what is done in, in European parliamentary systems. But European parliamentary systems hadn't been invented yet. Mm -hmm. That was voted down. A number of people, and Madison was sympathetic to this, wanted to directly elect the president. But that was shot down by southern slaveholding states who feared they would lose direct popular elections to the North. And so it, they went weeks and weeks. They finally put together a what was called a committee of unfinished parts, issues they couldn't resolve, and came up uh, through improvisation with this thing called the Electoral College, which borrowed a little bit from how the Pope is selected. And it, they really did not. They were, on, they were really in uncharted territory. And Hamilton in particular imagined the Electoral College would be sort of a a group of wise men of, of rich notables who would cool the tempers of, of the masses and it would kind of be a filter for election. Never worked that way because the framers, smart guys, did not envision uh, permanent political parties. They did not imagine that our politics would be run by parties, but parties emerged very quickly. Mm -hmm. 
the Electoral College became basically a partisan instrument, but it distorted the popular vote. And so we are the only, the only presidential democracy on earth where the loser of a popular vote can win the presidency. So in my tradition, Stephen, I'm going to give you a chance to make an altar call to these uh, people here, students. What can they do? And I'll start up by saying to students, I want to say the powers that be aim to make you cynical. They want to make you cynical. If you become cynical, they win and they stay in power. So they want to disrupt and make you cynical that this could ever change. Now, what I think your book does, it, your last book was about long-term, uh, you know, how we're making progress or losing progress. This book suggests uh, fascism is on the ballot in 2024. Fascism is on the ballot in 2024. So what can these young converts, they're committed to democracy, as you point out, what can they do? What can they say? What, what, what are the things that, that they can do uh, and we can do, uh, those who are listening to this podcast, uh, how do we get to the promise of multiracial democracy? Well, they're, they're short and longer term battles. I mean, yeah. in the short term, you guys know, you guys know the answer. You've got to participate. You, you have to participate and you can't just participate online. There is, there's a lot of evidence, a lot of social science evidence that shows that actual face to face political participation, that actually going to meetings and talking to people and interacting people generally has a lot of good knock on effects that um, clicking like onto something doesn't, doesn't generate. So when I say stay involved, I'm not just talking about reading up and, uh, and, and, and tweeting stuff. Um, I'm talking about actually joining organizations. That's really important. And again, you guys saved our democracy twice and counting. Unfortunately, we're going to need to call on you to do it another time. But it's also really important I, I tend to, I'm very mixed about saying things like fascism's on the ballot in 2024. We, we have a tendency, and it's not false, but we have a tendency to treat every election as life or death. And they're very important. They're very high stakes. But this is, this transition to multiracial democracy, which no society has ever done, and which I think we will do, and I think we'll, it'll eventually make us a model for the world. I'm very optimistic in the medium to long term. But it's going to take a while. It's going to take a struggle. So you got to, you have to pace yourself. You have to not lose faith. You have to not exhaust yourself in 2024. You've got, to, no matter who wins in 2024, you've got to get out of bed the next day and continue to fight for multiracial democracy. It's going to take a while. And um, one of the lessons that we learned from all the most successful reform movements in this country, whether it's women's suffrage or civil rights or abolition of slavery, those struggles took a long time. There were defeats, there were bad days, there were bad years, there were bad, but there were bad decades. But good struggles take time. And uh, so we, we also need to pace ourselves. For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter at Jim Wallace if you like. Blessings for the soul of the nation. Thank you all.